City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Now in their 30th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is with five leading performers. We can expect to learn not only about their preparation for a career in the theatre, but also about the energy, passion, and temperament needed to succeed. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing, and now with great pleasure, let me introduce our moderator for this seminar, Ted Chapin, president of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. Ted, would you now continue? Thank you, Isabel. Um, I don't want to correct Isabel, but I count six distinguished members of the theatrical profession here, and I want to introduce them to you. From my right, John Lithgow, currently in Sweet Smell of Success, Estelle Parsons, currently in Mornings at Seven, Jeffrey Wright, in the Pulitzer Prize-winning Top Dog Underdog, one prize that's already been given this season. Yeah. Mercedes Rule in Edward Albee's The Goat, or Who is Sylvia. Frank Langella in Fortune's Fool. And Andrea Martin in Rogers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma. <laughs> Welcome. I think it's fair to say that the characters that you all play on Broadway this year are a rangy lot. And uh, I thought I'd bounce the first question to John, because you're playing a bad guy. How does it feel playing a bad guy? Well, uh, I'm playing uh, a bad guy in a musical, the role of J.J. Hunsecker, based on Burt Lancaster's performance in the movie of 1957. And I love playing bad guys. Uh, uh, I, I haven't played a really bad guy for a long time, although I was doing a whole spate of them in the movies between about 88 and... 94. Hmm. So many bad guys. That's one, that's one of the reasons I decided to do a sitcom, to sort of cleanse them out of my system. Wow. That's very but serious. now, here I am again. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, have you played bad guys? Oh, I've played a lot of bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> like John, I love them. They're, they really are the best parts to play. I'm now playing a character who's described very often in the play as an infamous, fatuous fop. <laughs> <laughs> He's this kind of bad guy. <laughs> but they are the most delicious parts to play, they really are. Heroes are wonderful too, but bad guys offer you areas that you can go inside yourself that are really wonderful and exciting to play, and dangerous. Did you ever have a problem feeling that the audience is going to turn on you, or is that part of the fun? Well, no, you want them to, actually. I mean, you, if, you, if they don't hate you in the right sort of way, you haven't done your job. It's very dangerous as an actor to want to be popular. It's, a, it's something mm -hmm. you should fight quickly to get mm -hmm. it out of your system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding. Uh-huh. <laughs> In life, I think it's dangerous to want to be liked all the time. I think that's a really important thing to talk about, actually. <clears throat> it is because you Especially in this period with all people coming to see you and awards going to, you know, nominate. And I'm out there thinking, should I do a performance where people will really like me tonight? Like, as if that's going to matter. Yeah. I have to really fight against that. And it's, it's the um, thing that often it. sends you into acting when you're small and little. 
You often want to be right. an actor because you want to belong, you want to be popular, you want to be <coughs> in the center of things. And then as you get older and you realize what a skill it is and what a craft it is, and that the worst thing you can be, really, the most overrated quality in acting is sincerity. <laughs> you need to be dangerous, actually, if you're an actor, I think. Always dangerous and always avoid the idea that you should want to be liked. I think mm -hmm. even when you're playing a character who is likable, mm -hmm. you still have mm -hmm. to find ways not to pander to that mm -hmm. need in all of us. I, I wanted to pick up on this, not to be sincere, n not don't, don't go for sin sincerity. Anybody want to sort of take that on and see what that, expand on that? I'm not exactly sure what it means, so I thought it'd be interesting to hear. Jeffrey, any thoughts? Hmm, on sincerity, well, I... Or maybe you don't agree. Well, I tend to think that um, I, uh, the first, the first uh, film role that I did was with um, uh, Sidney Poitier. It was a miniseries called uh, Separate but Equal about the Brown versus Board of Education um, case. And um, he said something to me really interesting. He said, it was, I was... 20 years old, and <laughs> I was playing the youngest of these group, this group of lawyers. He was playing Thurgood Marshall, and my first close-up ever was opposite Sidney Poitier, and, <laughs> <laughs> and that was probably just going to the set that morning was my best bit of acting, because I had no idea what I was doing. I just started acting my last year of college, and at the end of this, um, this, uh, this shoot, about six weeks, he said to me, I, 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 you know, I said, well, I'm just going to say goodbye. He said, well, may I say something to you? I said, sure. <laughs> hear what you have to say. And he said, irony. He just said, think about irony. And uh, it's something that's, that stayed with me, just the tangent and, um, you know, the, 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 the non-literal, you know, yeah. um, stayed with me. So uh, I, I tend to agree in some, on some level. But it has to be... I think on some level, sincere irony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But irony, you said that after you'd worked it together, or was that? Oh, yeah, it was after, because <laughs> I, I think he, he saw that I needed a little, a little help. <laughs> what a I meant was that sincerity for its own sake, just sincerity, which I think a lot of young actors are mm. forced into, in television particularly, just be yourself, is an absolute mistake. It's mm. the wrong sort of advice to give, because what Jeffrey says is right. You can be deeply sincere if there's a twist, if there's irony, if there's anger. It, uh, it's interesting, but just to be sincere is really boring. Mm. There's another aspect of that. If you are uh, uh, being sincere, if that is your objective, you're always thinking about being sincere. And it becomes like a petrified form of honesty. Um, it, it's self-conscious sincerity. And um, too much sincerity uh, uh, it can cause people to want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so I know what you mean by yeah. that. Um, uh, but I was also going to say to that original question about uh, uh, wanting to be liked by the audiences. I was working in a play on Broadway and it was moved to London with an English cast and they were older gentlemen taking over from older gentlemen uh, in, in America. And the playwright said to me, I was so nervous at first because the, the British cast looked like they were doing nothing in the beginning. <laughs> they were just talking to each other, he said. <laughs> just talking to each other on stage. They weren't doing this thing where they were reaching out to the audience mm -hmm. and saying, like me, like yeah. me, you know? And he said, it was, a, it was about seven minutes into it that I realized that they'd gone like this to the audience and hooked them right in. Mm -hmm. Not but pandering, waiting for the audience yeah, to come to, to come them, to not going to the audience. Mm -hmm. And it was a good lesson. 
That's fascinating. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember a wonderful old drama teacher I had when I studied in London, Michael McGowan, who who said he loved when he directed a play to, to tell the audience to, uh, to tell the actors to speak very very quietly in the first f five minutes, because mm. it just, yeah. you know, that's yeah. the, that's the moment when you're creating the transaction with the audience and you just get them sitting forward and really listening. Yeah. That I think I have an extension of the story about. British actors. <laughs> Good. Two friends who went to see Private Lives the other night and left in the intermission because they couldn't hear and called up Manny Eisenberg and said, we had to leave because we couldn't hear a word that either one of them was saying up there. And Manny said, everybody has been calling me about that and we've got to do something about it. But also, you know, at our show, we're enhanced. <laughs> Probably all of you are enhanced. Everybody's enhanced. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's like I'm enhanced right now. But it totally <laughs> shocked me. Because one night somebody pushed the wrong button and we were still in previews and rehearsal and the next day Dan Solomon said, I couldn't hear anything for the first three minutes. That was no secondary glitch. Yeah. So I thought, my God, they can't hear. Well, I am in the first it, three minutes. It wasn't me though. It is, <laughs> astounding. It, it is astounding to stand on these stages yeah nowadays, huge three balconies, and think 40 years ago there was no amplification at all. Yeah. Um. Whereas a, a, an actor standing next to you, unmiked, yelling at the top of his lungs, is almost inaudible nowadays. Yeah. Uh, well, then he's doing it wrong, because we, well, we no, can do it. We but really I mean, can. the audience, yeah. too, has made a readjustment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're now accustomed they to hearing They always blame it on the audience. Um. They always say, <laughs> 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 we have to enhance you, because the audience is now yeah. used to enhancing right, that. Right. Well, they're also used to it. talking with you. I don't think <laughs> we're... Pretty soon they're going to enhance the audience. They just, oh my God, they say very loudly, oh, watch out. Yes. <laughs> you don't think you're in hand? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's just two of us, you know. It's just two of us there. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I did do a show, the last <laughs> show in this theater, and it's The Ambassador. It's about 1,100 people, I think. We did bring in the noise, bring in the funk there. And the show had been done downtown, which I wasn't a part of, and I came to do it on Broadway. And I, I said, you know, um, no, can I use a mic for this? I don't need a mic. And then I got out on stage, and there were like eight guys tap dancing and playing buckets and <laughs> <laughs> I quickly found the mic. <laughs> so I, I only had words. So, yeah. no, but it's, it's interesting that, that the set for Top Dog Underdog comes out, you know, it's, it, it is also physically contained and sort of tells the audience, pay attention to this space, you know, and there are only two people on it. Because I think sometimes, I know it's certainly in Oklahoma, part of the problem with Oklahoma is it's in the Gershwin Theater, which is vast to begin with. And right. the, the, the set from London is vast as well, so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it, you, you wouldn't know where to look to see somebody speaking. You wouldn't? If you weren't <laughs> in hands. <laughs> oh! Not when you're I'm on stage, some Andrea. people are but looking. <laughs> I, think, I think some of it about being heard is to do with focus, because we're at the Music Box Theater, and we're enhanced slightly, and we've never had one person tell us they couldn't hear us. But, interestingly enough, at the end of the show, for two weeks, Alan and I would do the Equity uh, Cares, uh, Equity Broadway Fights Eight right. speech, and invariably I would step forward and I would start to speak, and someone would say louder. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's something to do with the mental mindset. When I'm in the character, I'm full voice out, but suddenly I got mm. maybe a little shy and I pulled back. So I do mm. think every one of us is capable of being heard in almost every theater in the city. It's a question of 
training your voice to go out there mm. at intent. I think there's something very exciting, just the, the, the act of being loud. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it's very freeing, I think, in some way, for the voice and for the breath and for everything. And I, I really found it exciting when I can almost see the sound reverberate off the yeah. back of the stage, at the back of the house. I, 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 kind of, I kind of need it in some, in some way, because I can't do it on the street. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the one of the biggest houses in town is the Met Opera, and they don't enhance the opera singers. Uh, wow, well, they don't. They don't. But no, not at but all. But the yes. acting sometimes. We're not as good it. as we are. Well, <laughs> somebody put, pointed out to me in the great days of the musicals, of the Ethel Merman musicals that everybody loved, she would take six steps down front and look out and boom the well, song. Well, that's down. not true because okay. I happen to be in a musical with Ethel Merman. I'm sick and tired of people telling bad stories about her. Wasn't meant as a bad story. She didn't have to do that. Well, what I did mean, she do? In the opening number of the show I was in with her, we were like this, and she was way upstage. But I mean, it's it's uh, we can be heard. Probably everybody in this room can be heard. Yeah. I did Miss Margarita at the Ambassador, which is 1,100 seats, and of course was not enhanced. But uh, there are some people now who cannot be heard. Let's face it, who work on the stage with us, who cannot be heard. We are not those people. But going no. back to the other point, uh, the audience really is accustomed to mics now. Right. Uh, I mean. In, in Epidaurus, you know, in Greece, it's when not, they're not accustomed to mics, they want to be, they want to be able to hear. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, but I mean, how did you learn to work with, for, and against the audience? Where does that come in? That training. It's You're talking about the audience. It's experience. It's instinct, I think, first, and then experience. Years and years of getting up and discovering how and in what way you can hold an audience, how quiet you can get in what theater you're performing, how loud you can afford to be. Often, sometimes, you can be too loud in a performance, yeah. not too, mm -hmm. too low. Yes. And you have to adjust yourself. You can find yourself over, yeah. over yelling in a part that you don't need to. Right. And it's only playing it night after night after night and beginning to see, oh, they react to this when I'm tired mm -hmm. more interestingly than when I think I'm at my best. That's true. Some of the yeah. best performances, I think anybody in the panel will tell <laughs> you, is when you're not feeling well, mm -hmm. when you think you have to overcome something. And someone comes back and says, my God, what a it great show. so true. Thursday and Friday night, last night, I'm going to, because we've been doing the um, Oklahoma for two months now, and I, oh, maybe I'm losing it. I'm going to reinvest in it. So <laughs> Thursday and Friday night, I'm reinvesting, and I'm thinking of new intentions and way to say this differently. And I'm telling I swear, at the end of the, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get a real big applause at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. And uh, both nights are just... <laughs> she was lovely. Saturday night. Can you swear in this panel? Swear. Saturday night. I said, oh, f this. I'm not completely happy on Right? And then, yeah! Whoa! They were just, but I was, you know, I just inside my, oh, I'm just going to do it the way I really feel. Never, not, but, it, it, okay, go ahead. No, but it Am actually, I talking too yes, much? Yes, you were. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it brings up an interesting point about comfort on the stage. It isn't important, I think, that you're comfortable. It isn't important that you feel 
the truth every single moment. It's important that the audience does. Mm -hmm. And whatever you need to do, the nights when it's all you and you really do feel alive and real and organic and truthful and technically right is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there are nights when you can't get it up. There are mm -hmm. nights when you're exhausted and tired and that's where your mm -hmm. technique comes in. If the audience is moved, mm -hmm. whether you felt good or not doesn't right. really matter. Right. It's and a big It's a big misconception amongst young actors that mm -hmm. I felt good tonight. Well, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> George, uh, George Wolf. George, uh, when when I was uh, doing Angels in America, George Wolf said something really fascinating to me on that. On that, uh, uh, I it was the first part, and I was kind of having some difficulty. We had three months to rehearse, and and I was taking three months, and uh, <laughs> everyone was kind of swarming around me, going, "What's going on?" And uh, I was playing. Uh, retired drag drag queen so it was kind of um, navigating my way through that the sexuality of that and everything and, and uh, I, I was doing a scene in which I'd lose my voice it was a particular scene that was particularly intimate and I, and I would lose my voice I'd dry and I was kind of stiff and <clears throat> and I said to George I said well you know I'm not I'm not comfortable uh, you know uh, just yet and he said he said I don't I don't want your comfort I want your talent <laughs> yeah, and it's stayed with me for a long time. It took me. Uh, he he actually as well called me up. Uh, I think we were opening on a maybe a Monday uh, first preview, and he called me uh, Sunday at eleven o'clock in the morning before rehearsal. He said, "Jeffrey, uh, it's not working." I said, oh. I, I said, "I know, George. I have I have one more day." <laughs> <laughs> It worked out, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it took a while to break myself out of that comfort. That's yeah. the answer of a born actor. <laughs> right. born actor. Right. Time. There are a couple of things that your question made me think of. Um, uh, <clears throat> when you're a young actor, technique seems to me to have a, a couple of different meanings. When you're a young actor, one of the things that you uh, do uh, or feel is a fear of the audience, you know? They're going to eat me up, you know. <laughs> As a matter of fact, even when you're a middle-aged actor sometimes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think I remember when I was young hiding from the audience, and there are two ways you can hide from the audience. You can hide your face, and you can hide by speaking so softly they really can't hear you, you know. So one part of technique is just learning not to hide, learning not to hide from the audience. The, seeing the audience or even the lens as a as a, 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 a almost yes the way a flower moves to the sun mm -hmm. instinctively mm -hmm. because everything you're going to get to live and go and do a good performance every interaction the, the love the thing comes from there it doesn't come from there you know so there's just that thing that instinct that like a flower to the sun uh, to be loud enough to be seen you know but the other technique that I have always thought technique is, those are the requirements, but that technique was that thing that really did open up the sluice gates of emotion and, and, and let them come out each yeah. time. I mean, we certainly don't go on any night saying, I'm going to phone this one in. I'm going I'm to technique this one through, you know. Every time you go on with your technique sort of in line, instinctive now after these many years, thinking, I'm going to open up those sluice gates and let the real thing come through. It's a full heart. You go out. Yeah. I, I had a, yeah. I had yeah. a great experience very, very early on. Your question about just sort of getting to know how to manipulate the audience or, or keep them with you. My very first equity job was playing Lenny 
in Of Mice and Men when I was like 23 years old uh, at the McCarter Theater, which had a kids pro a high school kids program, bust in to see morning matinees, but we also <laughs> performed it at night. And I had done it four or five times at night for adult audiences before my first kids matinee. And I thought I was completely wonderful as Lenny, the, the mm. retarded farmhand who gets shot at the end by his buddy George. Then I put this performance in front of kids and they laughed me off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> and I was completely mortified and they jeered at me. And I had about 20 of these scheduled. No, I can't do it. But bit by bit, I found those moments when they, which they found the most ridiculous. And I found just little ways to snooker it by them. And by the end of these 20 performances for kids, they didn't laugh inappropriately at anything. There were a few laughs that were just right. Mm. And by the end, these high school kids were so captivated that they were yelling out at the end, and you could hear them crying and saying, Don't shoot him, George! <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just incredible, and it was all just a matter of listening to them. Mm. I mean, Where kids, did you learn to do that? But they taught me. I mean, and they were kids <laughs> who will teach you unedited. But you know, adults will be very polite. Kids will not. Actually, being in the field every night, and it's a great story because it it reminds me of something I learned very young too. There isn't any right in acting. There is no right night. There is only the search. There is only, as as Mercedes says, you go out every night with a full heart and your technique ready. But it's not right that night. It is as truthful as it can be. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is, so many actors will go out the next night saying, gee, I had it right the night mm -hmm. before. The night before is gone. It's in the ether. You must never try to repeat <laughs> it. You must never try to remember it even. It's better to just get those cobwebs and go out the next night and be truthful. We have a, a, a director that Estelle and I work with, Arthur Penn. If you can believe Estelle, I once played Estelle's son. <laughs> <laughs> I could now play her grandfather. <laughs> Arthur, Penn, Arthur Penn directed uh, Fortune's Fool. And the greatest thing about rehearsal was whenever Alan Bates and I thought that we were off somewhere, rarely, <laughs> thought we were off, but whenever, <laughs> whenever we could, would say, gee, this scene isn't right, or it's, you'd use that word. Arthur would stop and say, well, why don't you just play your confusion? Why don't you just allow not knowing how the scene is supposed to be? Mm -hmm. And we would do that, and, and Fortune's Fool looks beautifully staged, and it is because Arthur never staged it. He just, as John's story goes, night after night, we would go, oh, sorry, boom, oh, and you'd adjust, and pretty soon it had this beautiful, real flow mm -hmm. to it. The idea that you have to get it right, I think, is a big mistake. Yeah. But did, did you have a director helping you with that, or did you have to do that on your own? Uh, I recall that I was on my own. <laughs> I mean, I, I, the, ki the kids' matinees, no one was paying attention. But I found them mm -hmm. the most vivid part of that experience. Yeah. I think that's the way you have to learn it. You have to yeah. learn it, as you say, in the field. You know, I, I went to um, NYU um, uh, grad school, and I didn't stay long. I stayed for about two months, uh, because I had been working a little bit in the theater before. I'd done a couple plays before at the arena and various places, and I just found for me uh, that I wasn't a very good student. I'd been in college for, and been in school for 21 years, and uh, it was kind of enough of it. And you know, my mother was wanting me to go to law school, so I needed to make some money at least at what I was doing rather than um, you know being in drama school. And I found that just by getting on the stage is where you learn it. And in fact, uh, I had a, a similar experience. Well, some one of the best classes I ever had in 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 
in, in, in anything, in theater and audience and life, was, uh, was doing a, uh, my first job uh, was children's theater down in D.C. and we would tour uh, schools around the city with um, a, a telling of, of American history through folk tales. And I played Davy Crockett's grandfather and Hiawatha and John Henry and all the various <laughs> things. And Hiawatha's a good part. Yeah, <laughs> totally, yeah. still, still got it tucked away. <laughs> Davy Crockett's grandfather, though, is uh, <laughs> <laughs> something else. But we would do this show for kindergarten through fifth graders. And we would go and we'd you know, kind of start out with this, you know. And, kind of kind of <laughs> and it was wonderful. You know, we broke the set down. We break next next school, you know. And um, there was one morning that we, uh, we all met up at the theater and we, we you know, stopped the station wagon and then we headed off. And, you know, it's like 6.30 in the morning and I'm half asleep. You know, I'm 21 years old. 6.30 in the morning rarely existed for me. But uh, we, we go into this place, we bring everything in and, you know, they close the doors behind us and phew, it's like a deadbolt. <laughs> What's that about? And then we go in the next room. Like we're going into these vaulted rooms, and <coughs> we set up everything. We get there, and uh, you know, ask the lady, you know, well, why are we everything? Why is everything being locked? Well, this is a detention center for 13 to 18 year old hardened oh. criminals who have. I said, well, what are these? What are these kids done? He said, she said they're my children. I don't even ask. I don't ask what they've done. They were waiting transfer to uh, more serious places, and we got into this room. And there were about 12 of them, four of us, <laughs> <laughs> and we get up and, I'm an old-timer. <laughs> 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 oh, and these guys looked at us and started bawling with, uh, it was just, <laughs> I mean, just these huge, we were like the funniest thing they'd seen, but uh, it wasn't what was intended. And I've never been so frightened, I don't think, before or after on stage to the point where I was just looking at, I couldn't take them in. Was 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 just you know I everyone was like kind of, <laughs> we were our own audience and uh, <laughs> but we stayed in it we stayed in it we stayed in it and uh, you know we we were flying around playing uh, multiple characters and all this stuff and eventually they came around and they came in and they were with the show and it was a you know it was just a it, we you know did. Uh, the the uh, uh, Tennyson's Hiawatha, and we did, you know, very, you know so it, you know, it, was a, it was a fairly engaging show. And they, they, they came around, and it was the most gratifying uh, experience. It was very, it was, it was very scary, but um, I, I think uh, at the end I got one of the best compliments I've ever gotten from, uh, from an audience member for one of these guys. We're all kind of, you know, after the show, kind of taking everything. Taking the things down, we're talking. Well, does anyone have any questions? Yeah, yeah. yeah talk to that dude. Yeah, I got a question for that dude. <laughs> what kind of drugs do you do, man? <laughs> <laughs> I think you know it was the, the flight from Davy Crockett's grandfather to John Henry to Hiawatha kind of fun. But it was, a, it, was a, it was it was an incredible incredible day. And in fact, later that afternoon, I did. Um, a matinee for high school kids of another show that I was doing at Arena Stage and uh, Lorraine Hansberry play called Le Blanc. And it was, these were public school students, you know, free, and it was the worst audience I'd ever played in, uh, and I think since. Um, you know, it was, you know, these kids that were on the inside, I think, had uh, something 
it, it was just a lesson about not giving up on, on the audience or on people, you know, wherever they might be, you know. In the last couple of years, I've been, I have subjected myself to a brand new audience. <laughs> I've been doing weekend concerts with orchestras for little tiny kids, like three to eight. Uh, I, I have traveled a curious route to get there, <laughs> which I won't explain to you, but, I, but it's been a fantastic experience. I mean, playing in huge halls, Carnegie Hall, playing with major symphony orchestras, audiences of over 2,000 little tiny children. And it's been completely exhilarating. It's been my sort of shadow career. <laughs> uh, I even do it simultaneously with, uh, with Third Rock in the Sun and even Sweet Smell of Success. And that's, and it's almost subjecting myself to a kind of completely different chemical reaction because kids are an impossible audience. I mean, little tiny kids. Mm. You have to completely engage them or they riot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and the challenge, I mean, if, if I were a mountain climber, this would be Everest. <laughs> These are the, the best audiences. And in, in an interesting way, I don't know how it informs what I do for grown-ups. But it's, it's well, been it does an absolutely it, wonderful experience. It I mean, tests your powers of concentration and commitment. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think there is no such thing as a bad audience. I'm always upset when an actor says it's a lousy house. It isn't. They're no, in the, well, well, for me, they're in the, the dark, throws, you're in the throws light. food yeah. on the stage. Throws, oh, well, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless it's some tangerine slices. Unless it's something I want to eat. No, but I mean, but the audience that, that throws oranges at you, think how wonderful it is to, to get their attention. Yeah, it's it exactly is. what you were describing. Right. But can I tell a very <laughs> funny story about you <laughs> with an opposite audience? This was at the public theater. You were doing, it was about Joe Hill, the union organizer. What was the name of that Salt play? Lake City Skyline. Salt Lake City Skyline. It was a few years ago. I was two. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Sunday matinee, and uh, as I recall, it was in a theater that had, like, bleacher-like seats for yeah. a little bit. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a Sunday matinee, and uh, there were half-price tickets for senior citizens. So it was all senior, and students or whatever. So I was there with all these senior citizens. And there were these two women sitting in front of me, and it came to a point in the play where you get executed. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And they had a heart big heart on a piece of paper and they pinned it to your chest for the firing squad. Silence reigns in the audience and there are these two women in front of me and this one pokes the other and she said, Edna, <laughs> I can't see. It was, was kind of like in a three-quarter round and we were over on one side. What did they just put on his chest? <laughs> Edna said, it's a heart, Phyllis. <laughs> they watched for a while. And the guys are gearing up to kill you and everything, and you're saying these last lines, and it's a very, very still moment. And <laughs> Phyllis said, Edna, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. <laughs> I didn't hear you. <laughs> what do they have on his chest? She said, Phyllis, you are bewildered. You are really bewildered. It is <laughs> so we wait again. We're getting very close to the end. And finally she said, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill me, Edna. I still don't Then <laughs> Phyllis turned and looked at her, and in the silence of the theater, she said, Edna, he's got a heart on! <laughs> 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 and nobody, because he's preparing to die, and nobody really 
I'm seeing old laughing at me. I'm in the boat. I know from inappropriate laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole, the whole bleachers are shaking with people trying not to laugh. And the amazing thing is that I did. <laughs> uh, no, no, we got one. We won't go there, right? <laughs> and try to do that eight times. <laughs> Take this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to pick up on, on what John said about about the, the concerts because it, that's an adjunct to your normal profession, having taken something mm -hmm. that, that you can do in a suitcase. Basically, you can go in and, and do this. And I wanted to see if there are other uh, others of you who who you know, as your careers have gone along, have thought I would like to teach or they'd like to do something that will fuel what I'm doing, but also feed me. Yeah, you have to do. Um the other myth, I think, that should be broken down about being an actor is that you should live a monk-like existence or an existence that is free of stress. The more stressful your life is, the more complicated it is, the more people there are in it, the more you have children and marriages and love affairs and arguments and fights, <laughs> and you stay in touch with your family, the more difficult the day is. The moment you get to the theater and you have that, with me it's just about 30 seconds. As I get older, I know I need less and less preparation. You stand in the wings and you take all of that complicated day and you bring it on stage with you and you artfully use it. <laughs> when I was younger, I would think, well, I have to clear my day and you yeah. know, lie back like this. <laughs> it's nonsense. It is. Or I'd stand in the wings for so long preparing that I'd shot my load in the wings by the time <laughs> it was all gone. So I think I had a similar experience to John last year. Susan Stroman asked me to do Christmas Carol. So I spent what was it, seven weeks, seven, 15 performances a week for 5,600 people at Madison Square Garden, most of them kids. And what it does for you as an actor is thrilling because you really have to figure out how to harness that kind of an audience. And then when you come back to something like the music box and you have only 1,000 people, mm -hmm. it's, you've got all this wonderful excitement and energy that that brought to you. The more, the more mm, not messed up in the wrong way, the more complicated your life is, the better an actor you are, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's, I, I was going to ask Andrew, the, the Oklahoma cast is, is uh, there are a lot of young, young folk in right, it. Yes. Are, are they, do they have different disciplines or are they learning what Frank is telling um, us all? You know, I, I'm so impressed with them because most of the ensemble is like 21, 22, the same stands. They're just extremely disciplined. I guess to be that good at that age, they've been working very hard at discipline all their life. and. Um, but I think Trevor Nunn, an English director who directed this, um, I think instilled, um, gosh, because we haven't talked about, um, I don't know how you all feel about this, um, putting one's trust in the director. Because I guess there is a point um, as an actress for me when I, I just am um, nervous. And, I, and I, there's nothing in me, that, there's some things, um, that I just can't create in me the kind of confidence I really ultimately need um, to go out there and feel safe. And, and Trevor Nunn really gave us that. Um, so much so that the openings, going back a little bit, but I wanted to say this, the opening, I've really done comedy um, all my life, and I really wanted this part. I know it's a musical, but I wanted this part of Ann Deller because I didn't think of it as comedic. I really thought of it as grounded and um, more real, frankly, than other things I've done. And um, the opening scene, 
is a, a huge stage at the Gershwin with just a butter churn and uh, me coming around in the Revolve. Uh, it was, I was so petrified because I knew I couldn't rely on laughs. I knew that it wasn't presentational. He had directed the entire play with the ensemble also about um, deep connection and uh, without any regard, frankly, for the audience or what the reactions were. So w what happened after the fear of being out there, oh my God, how can I hide? Because there was no place to hide. And I wear a wig, unlike my hair, because I'm hiding today. Unlike <laughs> my hair, pull back. And there really was no place to hide. But what that gave me for the first time in my life, in 55 years actually, uh, <clears throat> was a great um, sense of surrender and connectedness with the other actors on stage. And I don't think I've ever experienced anything in my life where I'm really not thinking about the audience, I'm thinking about other. I know all you actors have um, felt that because you've done wonderful, substantial plays, but when you've done a lot of comedy, you know, it's all about what can I get, you know, love me, and I'm going to get this response. So I, that was just a It's, it's wonderful a to hear you talk this way, Andrea, because I always think of <coughs> comedy as the, as, as the courageous, yeah. you know, I mean, uh, I, I am so terrified of stand up is like hurling myself out there. Well, that's in what's in so interesting about this group of people, and we all have our own fears but and, you know, lack mm. of confidence. But Don't you think a director, uh, you started out with something that fascinates mm -hmm. me. Now, anyway, a director has to earn my trust. I don't give yes. it to him because he's the director. Oh, As a matter yeah, of fact, I start out thinking, are you going to get in my way? Are you, going to <laughs> yeah. are you going to mess me up? And then once he's earned my trust, I'll give him everything. But Absolutely. I'm not automatically going to think he knows better because he doesn't. How, how the actor always usually How does knows. he earn that trust? Yeah. How, how does well, by, by trial and error, really. And by, and by giving you things that you can actually use. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's amazing, especially if you work a lot in movies and TV. I have a list of probably 100 directors I've worked with by now. And it's frightening how few of them are any That's good right. at all. That's really <laughs> true. And also, how it's frightening how few directors love us. There are a lot of directors yeah. who don't like it, and as well, I think. Do you prepare? Do you prepare before you go on the no. show? No. Do you do any preparation at all? No, I wash my face. I brush <laughs> my face. <laughs> I make sure yes, my fly is zipped. Unless I have to do what John needs to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think most of us feel the way Frank feels that as you get older, the preparation time gets smaller Shrinks. and smaller. Although I must say, this is the first time I've ever been in a musical. And uh -huh. it's wonderful to arrive at my age and do anything for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I've never prepared so much. I've been taking right. yoga every morning because I know up? that in the evening, I'm, I'm twice as good if I've done yoga. Right. Just do you warm up? Do you vocally warm I up? Vocally and I stretch. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded by all these fabulous young musical performers who are stretching for, tw for 15 right, minutes right. before the curtain goes up. They've shamed me into it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask Estelle, Estelle something? Yes, please. It, it, Estelle's just work with Dan Sullivan, and I'm going to just say briefly, talking about directors and trust, I, um, I had the great fortune of working with Dan Sullivan in um, Mary Wives of Windsor, the only play I think he ever did that wasn't received well. <laughs> but Dan Sullivan, for me, was a person that said very little. He might have given me one note for the entire performance, and yet I trusted him. I trusted his silence. And I'd love to know what your experience was with him, and if it was different than other directors. <clears throat> she doesn't look happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know. No, uh, 
we were we are quite an experienced, seasoned, successful group. Uh, but we really, I felt, did not contribute much. He had. Uh, I don't know this thing of trust because I don't trust anybody and probably never will. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Trust. Pretty honest. Uh, yeah. You know, I've only had two directors in my life that I like to work with, and even them I wouldn't trust as much as I would an audience when I got out there. <laughs> They're meaningless to me. Arthur. Arthur <laughs> Who's the other one? Stephen Porter. Oh, yeah, Stephen. Wow. Um, but he, he had a concept and a vision of it. And basically, I would say that we are playing his concept and vision. And that's not uh, criticism, really, because I think that the play works that way, and I don't know. I, I wouldn't have any alternative way of putting it together. It's a very strange play on the page, very strange play to try to act, and it was, like, planned by him, even mm -hmm. to what prop I would use, what I would do with that prop, and... Uh, for everybody, we just kind of stood there and did what Dan's wow. vision was. So I doubt it's. Uh, I doubt that people who work with him in other plays have that. Well, it's really it was same a complete experience. opposite. So because that's interesting. This play yeah. was written before Lee Strasberg and the group theater. It was before naturalism. It was the kind of theater that the group theater was revolting against. You know, <laughs> it was written in the 30s. Mm. So it's not psychological at all, and I don't know what would have happened if all of us had gotten in there in the usual thing and said, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I think we'd still be arguing and right. still in, in, in rehearsal yeah. because it's almost impossible to find it because I don't know what it is. You know, everybody learned the lines, and we did what Dan told us to do. And it isn't that we couldn't contribute. I don't think we really had much to contribute uh -huh. because he had this... Pictures, very odd play. So Don't you think the best experience. directors, though, are the ones who say the least? Absolutely. Because I did mm. a I did a production of Hurley Burley in New York with Mike Nichols, who's just heaven to work with that way. And I lost a laugh somewhere the third or fourth month of the show. I lost a laugh that was really sort of guaranteed. It happens, you know. You've all had this experience. Mm -hmm. Every night it's like you can't, and then one night it goes away. So I called Mike on the phone. He was out of town. And I said, I lost this laugh in Act Two. He said, go get your script. I went and got the script. He said, I'll read the other part, and you read your part. And I read it, and I went. He said, oh, you're going da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> you should be going da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's how the laugh is. And I had, over the months, lost the rhythm of the joke. And Mike <coughs> said, how you doing? I said, fine, thanks. Boom. I went out that night. Did it work? Boom. I Can forward. I call you tonight? Yes. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can call Mike. The best story of this is, is uh, Lunt and Fontaine, when Alfred Lunt in some play, The Guardsman or something, had a reliable laugh when he asked for a cup of tea, and bit by bit it slipped away, and he said to Lynn, after becoming so yeah. frustrated, where is that laugh? I've lost that laugh when I asked for the cup of tea. And she said, darling, you're asking for a laugh. There's also yes. a great Berliner ensemble story about a woman who had a famous, mo famous moment with pearls where her lover came back and gave her the pearls and they, they, she took the pearls in her hand and looked at them and dr dropped them down and had this extraordinary reaction and did it for years and was always brilliant and always had a tear and somebody said, what are you thinking? And she said, oh, I'm thinking one, two, <laughs> wow. three, four.
It's a great actor story because it, uh, it's a, it's as Alan said in an interview we did the other day, acting is a wonderful combination of truth and tricks. Yeah. And I think it's a great way to look at it. We're going to take a pause now and hear from Isabel Stevenson on the American Theatre Wing. I am just overwhelmed at the wealth of talent that's on this panel today. And I want to say that if anything happened here, there would be no theater at all. <laughs> because theater is here. And, I'm, and you're just wonderful, all of you. And I'm so, so excited about you being here and so pleased at the generosity of people in the theater to share their knowledge with us. So now I can go back to say what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get back to the American Theater Wings working the theater seminar on performance, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of many programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theater Wings Tony Awards. This is given for excellence in the theater. We also have a substantial grants and scholarship program providing aid to off and off-off Broadway theaters, as well as to promising students to pursue their studies in the theater arts. As a long-established charity, our other meaningful and thriving programs are designed to promote excellence in the theater and to introduce young people and their families to theater and the wonderful magic it unfolds. Our hospital program, dating back to World War II, when we also created legendary stage door canteens to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, and aid centers and child care facilities. We take pride in the work we do and remain very grateful to our members and everyone who contributes to help make possible the wonderful programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is very important to the theatre and to the community, and we are proud to be part of this very exciting, wonderful industry. Now, let's return to our panel on performance and our moderator, Ted Chapin. Ted. Thank you, Isabel. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about directors. Jeffrey, you've been working with the director for uh, several, several times, including the current one, George Wolfe. Yeah, and I'll probably, probably only work with him for the rest of my <laughs> life. And oh, stop be it. Oh. Jeffrey, you're not going to work very much. George, <laughs> uh, George works a lot. George works a lot. We've done all right. We've done all right. And uh, he tolerates me. <laughs> so. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I think one component of directors that um, uh, is very helpful for me, I've found, is that they've had some experience performing before. They've had some experience acting because, um, y you know, a lot of directors, I think, um, are interested in sculpting people, sculpting spaces and things like this. But um, uh, they really have more experience as audience members than they have from the other side. And it really... Uh, requires an understanding of the process of what you of, of what one goes through, and uh, uh, you know I've had just understanding the vocabulary of communicating to an actor and understanding how it is that an actor can organically understand uh, what he's doing and bring it uh, bring it to life, so that it's not so it's it's as complex as it can be. You know, and and for me, I mean, working with George, but you know, I uh, particularly. I've, uh, is is good because he's smarter than me, and you know, I have a lot of directors uh, that I worked with. Not that I'm particularly smart, but I don't think know what they're talking about necessarily. <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, we, as as a uh, you know, 
serious actor, whatever that is, you know, doing serious pieces, uh, you know, from pieces that are grounded in some kind of history, you know, particularly American history, which is very complex, you know, particularly racially complex, and a lot of the roles that, uh, that, you know, as black actors we take on, the dramatic roles have some component of race attached to them, um, uh, simply because, you know, that's, uh, it's very <coughs> interesting stuff and makes for interesting drama. And, um, you know, I find that, uh, that sometimes it's just not a, a, an understanding that really serves me as an actor, that a director doesn't have the information, that doesn't have or hasn't thought about it. I'll, I'll give you a small example. I was doing a, a radio play of uh, a Faulkner piece and uh, with David Strathairn and uh, a couple other people, and I'm playing this uh, uh, s uh, a slave who had accompanied this southern colonel into battle. And at the end of the thing, you know, the war's lost, the, you know, colonel comes home, the, you know, slave comes back with him, and he's, you know, trying to figure out what's, you know, what's to be done next. And the director said, you know, well, David, who's playing the colonel, says, you know, you're uh, and he's a very well-intentioned guy, he said, you know, you're, you know, you're battle-scarred, and you're exhausted, and you're psychologically, uh, you know, uh, fatigued, and all this, and, you know, just, you, you know, you're really, you know, you're, you're, you're war-weary, and, you know, well, Jeffrey, you know, you're just happy to be home, you know. <laughs> and I, said, you know I said, well, you know, um, the guy was, like, in the war as well, and he certainly wasn't immune to the bullets, you know, but there was this kind of, uh, you know, just didn't really invest the character with as much complexity as might have been there, so we, we had some problems, but... You know, so, uh, it, you know, just really what you want from a director is you want someone who's informed and you want someone who sees what you can't see because you're not watching yourself. And, uh, you know, you want somebody smart. Estelle, you've directed, haven't you? Oh, well, not commercially. Yes, yes, I direct. <laughs> Do you enjoy it? I do enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot, but uh, I am I am an actor in every fiber of my being, so nothing could ever take the place of that. I mean, I do like to direct. I like to have an overview of... I love to work with actors, but I would a million times... Uh, I, I find acting painful. I'm gonna, not going to say I love getting up on the stage, but it's uh, what I do. It's when I'm alive. All of me is alive. And the only time all of me is alive. So, uh, you know, it's uh, precious, isn't it? Even <laughs> if it's painful. I know the old... Mm. Oh, excuse no. me. The oldest definition of theater is the... Uh, the actor, the boards, and the passion. Yeah, a and it doesn't and a say passion. anything about designers, directors, <laughs> direct. anything else. The boards, the stage, wow. the actor, and the passion. Maybe we can put the playwright in there. The passion <laughs> that what what infuses the actor with mm -hmm. uh, words. Uh, with words, with vitality, with passion. Um, and I I. I think all of us have learned, because I think we're all pretty seasoned, we've all learned to become director-proof in those times, in those rare times. Because I think you have, you have writers, you have, you have directors, and you have actors, but in that group, the place that is the most quicksilvery uh, 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 job I is directing. How do you define a great director? I know what a great actor is. I know what a great writer is. But a great director, his skills are more subtle. They're harder to, to, to describe. And uh, so I think you have the lowest percentage of great directors. 
in all those groups, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where you have the lowest percentage of talent. So you do have to become director-proof. What you it's need is a great third eye. And occasionally, if you have somebody as good as that Mike Nichols story, who can just... I, and they can talk to you spiritually, they can talk mm -hmm. to you about the emotions, but they can also say the rhythm of the line mm -hmm. is da-dum, 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 mm -hmm. you know? And still understand and the process you need to get to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a, mm. uh, there's an actor I've worked with a number of times named Austin Pendleton, who told me mm -hmm. a great story when he was directing Maureen Stapleton in mm -hmm. um, The Little Foxes. Mm -hmm. And she was really brilliant. And she had it. She just knew what she was doing wonderfully. He left her alone most of the time. And um, just before they opened in New York, he walked into her dressing room and he said, Maureen, I have a new idea. And she looked at him and she said, Austin, don't F with me. <laughs> 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 and he went, yeah. Because he knew he had a great actress in his hands. He knew she'd found the part. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't any reason to put anything new in her. And that's a good director as well. I, 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 I want to pay a little tribute to a director named Terry Hughes, who directed over a hundred episodes of Third Rock from the Sun that I just finished last year. What I loved about Terry was how completely he understood what his role was as a, as a director. Mm. I mean, sitcom is different in many ways from theater, of course, although it's more like theater than film. But he knew that this is an, a medium completely driven by actors and writers and their interaction. Mm -hmm. And he knew that the best he could do was to facilitate that collaboration and make it easy. Ma he would make one suggestion ev for every uh, for every 30 pages of dialogue. H it was just a very elegant setting of the stage for this sort of interaction. Uh, I mean, that's there are many different kinds of directors and many different media, but I think the essence of it is just understanding what your role is, how you can help, and when you can't help, how to just stand back, keep, keep the stage clear. And but knowing that the actor knows, because mm -hmm. he has to go out there eight times a week, that the actor's going to know by experience, by being in the field, on the stage, that this moment can work better this way or that way. And then Mike can come along and help you mm -hmm. when, it, when it goes wrong. But actors, uh, directors have got too much power these days and too much aura and mystery about them. It really is very much the actor's job to find well, it's it interesting. and hold it. There was one run through of, of Oklahoma, and, and I don't know if this, is, this happens all the time, but Trevor Nunn gave some notes to the company and then said to the company, I've never heard the story, tell me the story. Mm. And then went and sat down and I thought, wow, what That's a wonderful a thing note. to say. It was like that great Guthrie story where he would give notes at the end of a run through and then he just dismissed the cast by saying, amaze me in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think, I don't think directors are are, 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 are uh, overly, uh, you know, uh, revered or whatever, or given too much power. I think uh, bad directors are. But if <laughs> a good director um, deserves as much, um, you know, credit as he gets, um, I, you know, I think, you know, I guess in, you know, in Elizabethan time, you know, there was the writer and the, and the, and the actor, and that was it. <coughs> but um, I've, you know, I've found there have been a few instances where, I mean, I, I just, uh, a director will pull things out of you that, that's, that's not there, that, that, that otherwise wouldn't be there. I think with, mm -hmm. in the theater, what's wonderful about being an actor in the theater mm -hmm. is that you're entrusted with the play. You know, in film, uh, there's so little trust. The actor is, you know, is edited, he, you know, his, his, uh, 
you know, every gesture is, you know, is at the whim of, you know, some editor who you haven't even met, you know, whatever. Then the director's whim and whatever. But in the theater... He goes away and it's yours. It's, it's, it's given over to you. And a good director will, I mean, whatever that means, mm -hmm. but will give you information and give you and control you with freedom, you know. But the process of, of finding the play, particularly a new play, I think is, is uh, you know, requires someone who's very, very smart. That's all I want from a director. Someone who's well, really... You take somebody, there are directors who have changed the course of, of acting and, and of drama. I mean, Ilya Kazan. Sure. Yeah. And the great ones are always invisible. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, the, it's the ones that we have difficulty with. Concept uh, directors. Concept, the where the, the conscious or unconscious <laughs> desire of the director is that everyone issues from the theater saying, whoa, wasn't that brilliant directing. <laughs> when that <laughs> happens, the experience has been a failure mm. because yeah. the director has not become invisible. Kazan was invisible in everything huh. and felt everywhere. I think eventually, but I don't want an invisible director. Why? He, I think he's... No, in the actual performance itself. Of course, of course. In the actual performance itself, I don't want him invisible in the rehearsal. Yeah, part. right. I think you what's important in what is is really heightened dialogue. You know, really good dialogue. You know, that's the whole point. And if that's uh, if that's not there, then he shouldn't be there. In I, 1960, I'm sorry. Let me just no. I'll tell it real quick. Yeah, in yeah. 1960, what was it? Three or four. Arthur Miller had written a play called After the Fall. And I was a, in, in the Lincoln Center training program, which was run by Ilya Kazan. And I sat in a room at the age of 23 or 12, whatever I was, reading the part of Quentin for the actresses who were coming in for the debut of this play. And behind me sat Arthur Miller, Robert Whitehead, and Ilya Kazan. And all the leading young actresses of the day came in uh, to read. And this is when I got a lesson in what great directing is, because Gadge just sat there like that, and mm. these actresses would sit down, shaking, all of them, because this triumphant of men was extraordinary. <laughs> and I didn't know the problem of this play. I was 23. I s subsequently played it when I was 55 or so. But I just reading this old guy's lines and f trying to be as good as I could to my colleagues, and these actresses would come in, and one by one they were awful. They were just awful because they were so scared. This is a new Arthur Miller play, Ilya Kazan's directing Robert Whitehead. And Gadge would get up, and walk over, this was three days of this, some 40 or 50 women, and he would lean over and he would say, and she'd go like this, and they were radiant. They were, every one of them found something. And I finally had the courage to ask him what it was he said to them, and he said, I say to every single one a different thing, but I say the truth I think they need to be free. He, he specialized in understanding the actor oh. and the actor's process and the actor's need. And the, his greatness, his genius, was that he was able to look at Mercedes' rule and know what would unlock her. Wow. You see, in bed as well as on stage. Because he certainly... Well, have you know, any of you had s such a, a, an experience when you're auditioning and a director will come and say a c something that will make yeah. you feel, oh... Well, I, I auditioned actually for for Kazan when there was this this moment that passed very quickly when he was going to direct Burton in Lear, and I went to read for the part of Edgar, and I just I just spent like twenty minutes talking with him. I didn't read at all, but talking about he, he sort of gave me a homework assignment to come in a week later 
read about beggars and wow. uh, the wretched, you know, the people who wandered around on the, on the heath back in those days. You know, just learn a little bit about the context of the But talking about lots of other things, too. And at the end of that 20 minutes, I was absolutely dying to work with him, you know. <laughs> uh, well, it was just my little brush with Gadge. Um, well, when, when, when Andrea, I, I was lucky to be in the room when Andrea came to audition for, for Trevor Nunn for Oklahoma, and it was, I mean, it, it was, it was an extraordinary audition, and it was a wonderful moment. I, I felt we were, I was one of a, quite a gaggle behind the table, and I always f felt that's not fair to an actor to have, you know, to walk into a room and find 30 people lined up there. <laughs> but it yeah. was a great, it was a wonderful audition, and he, he also, he goes over and, uh, and whispers. You know, <laughs> that, I had the reverse um, effect, Trevor Nunn. Don't look at them. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Let's just look at you. I'm so used to looking at. Okay, I'm gonna look at you guys. But I'm gonna cheat out there. I talk on the side of my mouth because I don't know how not to do it. Um, do what you want. Do Trevor, what you want, John, Trevor, no, yes. Well, he was so such a gentleman, and he came up to me and said, "You did, I'm sure, every single person on audition." And asked me about what I'd done and had I had he seen this and and this and he's looking at my resume and I'm thinking, gee, I really wish he wouldn't do the small talk with me. It's not relaxing me at all. In fact, it's taking me out of what I need to focus on for the part. And so I don't. I think a lot of actors like that kind of conversation because he was really genuine and. Um, but I just wanted to get right to <laughs> what I'd worked on, and this is who she is, and <laughs> let me just sing my song and everything. But, um, right, so that's that story. But can I say one story about this? Um, another sitcom director, David Trainer, gave me an invaluable lesson, um, I guess in trust, that's a big word for me, um, in the theater also. I was doing a sitcom um, with the Carrie Fisher wrote, and um, I loved it. Uh, uh, but the lines would come down and I'd immediately think how can I rewrite them and how can I restage this and finally after a few days of this he said you know I think you really have to come from a place of believing that everybody out there is um, good and they will see if you do the lines that they aren't working but you have to do what's written there first and it was an invaluable lesson in the sitcom and I've been able to bring that to the theater because my first impulse if I'm scared is to say that's the wrong direction that's the wrong choreography why did you put me in that hat that's not the right dress and now I try to just um, Go, go with the belief that they wouldn't be there unless they were good. I know it's a little naive. <laughs> I stay there for a while, and then if it's still not working the way I want in previews, I say, can we have a conversation? But it has served me because it's let me let go of the constraints of fear and has uh, made me open, as, as you're talking about, giving me freedom but to you, experience. Your, your training is it w was m mostly in improvisational theater or largely? I mean, certainly uh, you come from an improvisational background, right? So that that's, you know, it's started off in legitimate theater, but um, improv, uh, Second City was what gave me some kind of celebrity, and then I guess I got cocky that I can, what, I'm going to rewrite Oklahoma? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I'm going to rewrite Terrence McNally, you know, I'm going to rewrite Lips Together. Terrence, I got a new line for you. It's, it's all about fear. It's all, I don't know, I can really do what he wrote, and so it's m me just stepping in when I don't need to at that point. I think it's all about, for all of us, freedom and letting us tap the resources in us that are the most free and but I, I, I want to talk a little about training a little bit too okay. because because you know I know that there's a different a lot of different kind of training here mm -hmm. and and what's what's important any training at all or are there any specific kinds that, that you would recommend or not well uh, go for the Harvard grad yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Everything I know about acting, I did not learn at Harvard. <laughs> uh, mainly, I, I mean, I, after Harvard, I went to England for a couple of years and studied at Lambda and came back. Basically, the first 12 or 14 years of my career were the theater, which I, I think it's as simple as that. The theater is the best training. I mean, whatever other areas of entertainment you go into. You learn the most from directors and audiences, and even, dare I say it, critics. I mean, people who just sort of, th they give you a sense of who you are as an actor. The first time I became well-known in movies, I was 35 and had already done 15 plays in New York, and I always considered myself so lucky that I knew who I was as an actor before everybody knew who I was. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, th the theater does it. Th and all of you, all of you have done film and television, and you all started in the theater and are here because you love the theater. Mm. That's the point I'd like to make, because I think it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's important. I mean, do you find in your, in your television and movie experiences that you can tell an actor who, isn't, who doesn't come from your world? Yes. In a word, you yes. can, but uh, <laughs> I, I must also say that uh, it's all changed from when I started. Now we really are all one family. There isn't mm. anything anymore, I don't think, as television, actor, movie. I, you're an actor. And you're a great actor, you're a good actor, you're a bad actor. It doesn't matter the medium anymore. We all now cross over. There used to be this terrible division of, oh, that's only, if you do television, you, might, you can't do films. Or if you're a theater actor, you can't, um, you know, you, you can't handle a camera. We're now all forced to, by economics and by the way the setup is, we're all in everything. One of the things, Andrea said at the end of this, that I think it's an important word we haven't talked about, is fear. You know, the other thing is that we're all frightened. Every actor is starts out from a place of fear because you're going to you're going to do this. You're going to reveal yourself in a way that's can be terrifying to you. And I think that's probably one of the greatest joys of being a theater actor is that every night you go out and face that fear because mm. the minute you face it, you conquer it. It's only when you hide from it that you don't. And it's so the, thi the things you're afraid of are the things that you learn the most from. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as I say, it, the most scared <laughs> I've been in the last couple of years was the first day of the workshop of Sweet Smell of Success, mm -hmm. when I was sitting there with a bunch of extraordinary singers and dancers. Yeah. And I felt I was right back to square one. I was so nervous, totally lost my voice after three days because I was using it so badly. I was terrified. And, I f and overcoming that fear is always when you s make a few steps mm -hmm. forward. I, I've decided now, for the rest of my career, I'll only do things that I'm afraid of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a wonderful, I don't know uh, if uh, any of you have uh, seen those uh, six uh, interviews between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell, but on yes. one of them, yeah. on one of them uh, Campbell is talking about situations in your life when you have a heightened sense of being alive. And he said mm. that in the Vietnam War, for instance, a lot of GIs would re-up because while it was terrifying, they had never before nor expected ever after to feel as alive as they did. And it's a pretty, pretty, you know, dramatic way to find. But I think one of the things that we love as theater actors, mm -hmm. and fear is the price, is that feeling of being so alive on stage. Mm -hmm. 
people talk about being almost in a trance, and in a way, it's not a trance where you're like, duh, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it, it has this in common with a trance, that if you have a sore throat, or if you have a, a sprained ankle, or it you have away. that, you do not feel yeah. it. Right. And that is uh, 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 an indication that you are in an altered state of being more alive, you know? <laughs> it's dangerous. You're walking out in some dangerous terrain. They're all out there, you know? No director, no editor can come on and say, take it again, don't do that, let's do it from this angle, you know? You're out there telling the story the way Homer told the story around <laughs> the fire, you know? <laughs> Beginning, middle, end. Nobody interrupts. It's a great feeling that's a of good, power. Uh, that's another point about fear that I think is important, what, what Mercedes just said. The sooner you learn as an actor that you're a vessel, the quicker your fear goes away. Because when you're younger, you're sort of going out there being, look at me, watch me. Mm-hmm. But once you understand you're a vessel for the playwright, That's right. your fear disappears. Because what you're doing is delivering the story every night. And you're going past yourself into that stratosphere. And it is really a stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's not a goofy, stra- you know, it's like, oh man, I'm really high. <laughs> it's a really great, great rush. It's a very privileged yeah. profession we're in. We're very but that's lucky. the danger of it as well, uh, yeah. is that actors can feel alive in anything and will do anything to get that feeling, whether it's worthy of that vessel or not, yeah. you know. And uh, it's a little way a lot of, like, really useless uh, material gets done, you know, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but that because an, actor, an actor's like, yeah, I'll play that fish. I'll yeah. do it, you know. <laughs> just, uh, you know that's an extremely, <laughs> it's an extremely good point. It's you know, yeah, because you want to invest, you yeah. will invest something that isn't really worthy of it, of all your energy and heart. Yeah. I it's was kind of spoiled by, uh, by, by my first experience on Broadway, which was doing Angels in America, um, which really uh, kind of brought together everything that I, you know, speaking of training, it was like theater, theatrical training and also uh, I was a political science major in, in college, and it kind of brought all of that into play as well. And it was also a piece that was done at a time, at the time that it sprang from. So it had this kind of uh, concentric um, history around it, and it felt, you know, as you're saying, feeling alive. It felt that, I felt it at times that, once I figured out what I was doing uh, <laughs> as an actor, that I was supposed to be at that place at that time, telling this story and saying these <coughs> words, and that uh, it was a very... A very alive and powerful, yeah. powerful place to be, but it, but it spoiled me. It spoiled me because it, uh, it was early in my career, and it got me uh, thinking that everything I could, everything that I did as an actor would could be important, you know, and could have every piece, every story that I told could have, uh, you know, uh, social, political uh, implications that were worthy of uh, of an audience, you know, and and be engaged um, somehow in the society that we're living in. You know, you, you can sometimes, and then you know, sometimes you can't. Well, the Did uh, you audition I, for Angels? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the flip side of the coin of that feeling of being alive and in the still point of the turning mm-hmm. world for a moment, you know, is that uh, it's an eternally humbling job, mm-hmm. acting. Mm-hmm. Because you can invest certain material with the same part of your soul, the same heart, the same emotion, the same... But the uh, actual material itself is not as fortunately as composed Mm. as the Chekhov play you did Mm. last year, that you gave the same investment to. Mm. And it flew up to heaven. And here, it just doesn't register. It doesn't come across the footlights because the material isn't supporting the work. But even when the material is great, we were talking in the break last night 
Um, we had a lot of theater people into the show last night. We all felt an urge to be really good, and the audience simply didn't react to us in the way they always do. And you're out there thinking, gee, I've got a buddy out there, there's a producer out there, there's a guy who can give me a job. And, <laughs> and the play began to go in a direction it had rarely ever gone before. It went into a darker, sinister place. And Alan and I unstatedly said to each other, if this is where it's going, this is where we're going with it. It doesn't mean that we're unsuccessful if a big laugh doesn't come. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're unsuccessful if a scene suddenly turns dark. As long as you're in that scene, in your character at that moment, and everybody came flooding backstage saying we loved it, and we kept thinking, well, it wasn't, you know, it could have been better, this could have, but mm -hmm. their, if their experience is honest and real, mm -hmm. and yours has been honest and real, mm -hmm. the play can go in a dozen different directions yeah. and still be viable. It goes back to what we said earlier about there's no right in, yeah. in this. I, I wanted to pick up on something that you had said earlier in talking about directors where you said a, a lot of them don't like or don't necessarily like actors. And, and yeah. one of the thoughts that, that, that occurred to me is, is the, the amount of and the kind of respect that, a, that actors are or are not given. And I was thinking this specifically in the, the new plays that some, some of you have done. And I would think that the, to, to be an actor in a new play, would put you in a position of if you have a line that's never been, or lines that have never been done before, and you, something, as Andrea said, something about it, even though you may try to make them work and they don't work, are you, are, are you empowered enough to say to a living author, can we have a conversation here, or, or how does that yeah, work? Really in, the in the best of worlds, it's, it's, it's yeah. very collaborative, <laughs> and working on something new is, is completely exhilarating. You know? yeah. Well, at the end of one of our best rehearsals of Sweet Smell of Success, Brian Darcy James, he made the famous statement, revivals are for cowards. <laughs> <laughs> and it, was one, it was so yeah. just sort of <laughs> charting, charting new territory is so exhilarating as long as you're working with wonderful collaborators. It's also great there's to have a, there's a pitfall in that, though, is mm -hmm. that if, uh, if your initial instinct is to think that it's the play or it's the director rather than yourself that's uh, the problem. I think once you've exhausted every possibility within yourself, then, you know, you can go there. But it also as well depends on who you're working with, who the collaborations with. With Top Dog, Underdog, um, I first read the play three years ago and uh, we did, uh, George called me and um, I was happy to be in Los Angeles, flew in and did, did a reading of it and then did, later did another reading and then we did it off-Broadway, Broadway, uh, of course, um, last summer, and we spent about a month around the table before we even got on our feet, just working on the piece, working on the play itself, the words itself, and, and reading it and rereading it, and Susan writing and rewriting Susan Lauren Parks, and uh, it was, uh, it, the thing about it was, it was just, it w there were four people in, the, in, a, in, a, in a room who had a relationship that was really wonderful. It was in, it was so circular, and so even, and everyone kind of ideas would bounce around. You know. Yeah, and that's and but everyone trusted each other. We all knew that we were there and uh, for a reason. But that's uh, that's yeah, difficult. It's, it's lucky moments when the actor yeah. when the actor feels like he's part of the creative process. I think that's sort of a new development too. The first play I did, Mrs. Daly has a lover. The guy would not let one word be changed. I worked with a lot of playwrights like that. And one of the big challenges as an actor is there, if there's a line or a space that you can't get and you're always thinking, there's something in that mm. that I mm. haven't found and when I found that I'll know a lot more about yeah. 
what I'm doing, I think it's very tricky to let a lot of actors uh, get involved in the writing. I mean, we may be a great group, <laughs> but you there are, are a lot group. of actors you don't really want what they wrote. You want what <laughs> the playwright wrote. And it's you great to have them alive. The <laughs> You're lucky wants. when you have... I, I've been so lucky my whole career. I've had brilliant living writers in the room. I did a play called Passion by Peter Nichols, mm -hmm. and we were really messing it up. It was terrible in rehearsal. <laughs> it was just awful. So I went to the director and I said, could we have Peter Nichols read the play to us? <laughs> and all the other actors went, no, I don't want to hear the that. I said, well, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear what the writer's intentions were. So I went and got a lot of bagels and cream cheese. <laughs> we went, <laughs> went to my apartment and 10 of us sat around and Peter Nichols read his play and it was like bells every you saw every actor suddenly go oh my god mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't know we couldn't find within ourselves yet we would, probably would have gotten there at some point but we were really heading into the toilet <laughs> and peter read this play so brilliantly and we he didn't ask us to imitate him but we got his original intent. It, it, it's oh, it's an interesting great. thing in in Moss Hart's great memoir act 1 which is the best book written about the process yeah. of theater. I was so amazed, 50 years ago, this was completely tradition, that the playwright, the first thing that happens is the playwright reading the play to the, to the actors. Wow. The yeah. actors don't sit and read the play, the playwright did. Yeah. George S. Kaufman yeah. Yeah. read Once in a Lifetime out loud to the cast. Yeah. It seems amazing. It would all be read as some of Seascape, which was my first show in New York. Mm -hmm. and wow. A lot How come that changed? Yeah. yeah good and question. The, the playwrights are probably asking the same question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we should get back to that. Yes. I'm but working with All Be Now, and, and I, I did uh, uh, Virginia Woolf, the Guthrie, last year, and we're doing The Goat this year. And at the first reading and with all the producers there, he said, um, does it, did, he said to the four actors, you like the play? And we all went, no. He said, good, because it's not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's amazing. The first reading of Seascape, which was 1975, Edward came in, he was directing it as well. Uh, Deborah Carr, Barry Nelson, Maureen Anderman, and myself, we sat down, we read a three-act play, which took about two and a half hours, and he said the same thing. He <laughs> said, do you all like the play? And we said, yes. He said, get your pencils, I'm going to make a cut. <laughs> he said, turn to act two, cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Wow. He cut the entire second act. And I said, that's the reason I took this. <laughs> I, want, I want that line, I want that thing. He just took act two right out, and we ended up with a two-act play. Did you say, now I don't like the play? <laughs> <laughs> I said, now I like it less. <laughs> <laughs> One third less. Yeah, a third less. Yeah. And composers and lyricists would sing their, their, their material. Did, did that happen on Sweet Smell? And pr uh, did they present it to the cast on the first day of rehearsal? That's traditionally mm, a kind of wonderful uh, moment. No, I don't recall. Well, we had gone through this long workshop process. Weren't you um, really scared at your first? I was scared at my first orchestra rehearsal in the musical. But I never didn't that terrify you? Oh my God! I, really I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Yeah. This, yeah. this fabulous new word, sits probe, yes. which I'd never yeah. heard before. <laughs> <laughs> sits probe. <laughs> 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 you see, it's a none of us know this because we're not musical. Yeah. 
It's the, the first time the performers and the yeah. orchestra yeah. No, I know together. that. It's I thought it was a gynecological oh, term. Right. <laughs> 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 I had a sex probe, but it didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> there's the sits probe, where everybody sits. And then there's the Vonda probe, where they sort of walk around. Right? Uh, what is probe? <laughs> it's, it's German for si a singing oh, test. It's the okay. first time you test out the orchestra well, and when the, the singers together. When the conductor raises that the first time, oh, Paul Germaniani did that. I was I terrified, and then when you heard the full orchestra for the first time. It's so exciting. It's really yeah. exciting. Speaking of first times, I asked Jeffrey about auditioning. How do you feel about auditioning, and do you still have to audition? We all are, we're always auditioning. You're, you're actually auditioning when you're in a play at <laughs> night, too. I, I, I often, you know, sometimes I have to audition, uh, and lots of times I don't. I figure if somebody doesn't know <laughs> what I've done the last 50 years, <laughs> if, it's, if it's, a part, it's perfectly clear I can do and do very well, and they want me to audition, then lots of times I don't, because I know the people are going to be weird and I don't want to work with them. But <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times when they say, oh, just come in and meet the director, you know, you won't have to read anything. And I've read the script and I'm interested in it. Lots of times I'll say to the director, hey, can we read a little bit of it? Because uh, it, the, I'm nothing like what I play usually and lots of times I'm depressed. <laughs> and so then they don't see anything that they're going to get. So what good is, <laughs> what good is sitting together? But if, if I really like the material, and all my life, I, my husband used to say I was crazy because I was the only person he ever met who liked to audition. But for me, it's a performance. It's a chance to be up in front of a really hard audience particularly singing, and I can sing better than anyone sitting in those wings and listen to me, guys. <laughs> you know, but to read that way, too, to have the opportunity to, to really grapple with the material. Right. I think it's terribly important. I, I don't it's know exciting. why people are... And directors don't, it. you know, directors don't have to audition. There is a famous story of Shelley Winters coming in at the age of 65 to, uh, to come into audition for some kid of 24 <laughs> who said... She <laughs> said, well, Miss Winters, what have you got for me today? And she reached into her bag and took out two Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, what have you got for me, baby? <laughs> yeah, that's so good. The auditioning, I, I don't enjoy it. I find the judges there, you know, bring me back to when I was seven years old, being judged by a parent or a nun or something. <laughs> I hate it, <laughs> you know. Um, but one thing you know about good directors, a good director knows I'm one audition, uh, usually. You don't have to have seven callbacks. A good director he knows. knows. Uh, Mike Nichols knows. They know in the first uh, three you, lines. Yes. Yeah. And when you're called back three and four times, then you know you're with an inexperienced director, and probably you're not going to get it. And I remember once with Lawrence Fishburne, I did an audition for a, a, a film. And it was a young director who brought me back again and again and again and mm -hmm. again. And it was after I had done Fisher King and, and Lost in Yonkers and won a couple of awards. And I was thinking, excuse me, moi, you know, <laughs> one audition, maybe. <laughs> but three, are you out of your And, and you, it, it was just diminishing returns. And it, was, it, it finally became really quite 
embarrassing you know, to me, undignified. Yeah. Yeah. And I got a lovely um, little floral thing the next day from Lawrence. I never did do the film. I think he did it with Ellen Barkin, but he just put a little card in. I was in it. Bad company. I was in it. He put this little card in that said, those who know do not speak, those who speak do not know. Uh, I'm another uh, actor. It was. Oops. <laughs> That's okay. Don't Can speak. I still be heard. <laughs> I think we're okay. I think you're okay. <laughs> Fantastic. You yeah. And you usually yeah. know you're not going to get the job if, as you're leaving, the director tells you how great you were in something you saw years <laughs> yes, ago. Yes, 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 like, I didn't get this job. <laughs> it's, it's My experience <laughs> was different in Oklahoma. I w had to be called back three times. Um, I know. I knew that Trevor Nunn wanted somebody else. Another actor probably would have said, "You know what? I'm not going to do it." But I wanted that part. And um, I just had to put my ego at the door and just believe that it was an opportunity to get it. And after three auditions, of, and believe me, I don't really honestly in my heart believe he did want me even at the end, but it was starting rehearsals in six days. <laughs> but I believe, <laughs> but I believe by the end of the rehearsal process, um, he was one over. I did. And I feel so grateful that my ego, which believe me, in the past, I'm not going to swear again. <laughs> 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 and my ego in the past would have said, how dare they, you know? I but have to interrupt you. I'm terribly sorry to do this. I am humbled at the amount of talent that's on this panel today. But unfortunately, we haven't enough time. And so we, have t uh, we could go on and on and on. And if you would stay and not do any matinees or any evening <laughs> shows, I'd love it. But I have to say thank you so very much for being here. And this is just one of the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you so very, very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.